Experience the beauty and emotion of Lent and Easter with Christianity Today's newest devotional, Easter, in the everyday. Thoughtful readings from a variety of pastors, theologians, and writers invite you into the emotional stages of Christ's journey, from humility to hope to love. Beginning on Ash Wednesday and ending at Pentecost, this digital devotional is perfect for individual or group study. Get it today at orderct.com easter24. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Well, hello. Welcome to The Table Podcast from Dallas Theological Seminary. I am Bill Hendricks, the Executive Director for Christian Leadership at the Hendricks Center. On the table, we discuss issues of God and culture. Today, what I want you to do as we start this is I want you to think about the least likely person you can think of who would ever convert to Christianity and who would ever follow Jesus Christ as a disciple. Just fix that person in your mind. For some people, that's going to mean, oh, uh, a drug cartel kingpin or a pedophile or uh, some terrible leader somewhere who's enslaved their people. For somebody else, they can probably think of uh, an abortion doctor they might think of. They might think of a politician they detest. Um, they might think of a relative that uh, they're just certain could never, ever, ever come to faith. Well, our guest today fits that category. Uh, Tom Terrence is the President Emeritus of the C.S. Lewis Institute, an international discipleship ministry based in Washington, D.C., uh, or the D.C. area. Prior to that, he was a pastor. Prior to that, he, of course, went to seminary. Prior to that, he got an undergraduate degree in classics. Prior to that, he was in prison. Prior to that, he was a terrorist for the Ku Klux Klan in Alabama and Mississippi. Prior to that, he was a high school kid in Mobile, Alabama, where he grew up. And prior to that, he was an average kid in the South whose parents worked, and he played with his buddies. Tom Terrence, I know I've probably given away a lot of the punchline to the story here, but welcome to the Table Podcast. We're so excited to, be, to have you with us today. Well, thank you, Bill. It's a, it's a great pleasure to be with you, and I appreciate the work you're doing there. And and uh, the work of Dallas Seminary. I'm especially grateful for Daryl Bach and his good scholarship that has helped me a lot. Yeah, Dr. Bach is my colleague. He's the Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center, and he's also Senior Research Professor of New Testament here at Dallas Seminary. So, Tom, uh, I, I knew instantly I wanted you on this podcast when I picked up a copy of your book that was recently released entitled Consumed by hate redeemed by love, how a violent Klansman became a champion of racial reconciliation. Uh, there are so many layers in your story that we could go into. There's the whole civil rights era and the South. There's how you became radicalized by the white supremacists and your activities with the, the Klan. Uh, then we get into racial – where does racism come from, and what do we do about racial reconciliation? We, we could do a whole podcast with you on prison and prison life and prisoners, which is a big, a big thing. Uh, 
anti-Semitism, political polarization. I guess what I want to start with, though, so you're this average kid in, in Mobile, Alabama in, in the early 1960s. And how in the world did you, did you, did you get involved with the, the, the Klan? Well, it's it's um, it, it is a strange a, a strange odyssey, I suppose you'd say, because I was raised going to church every Sunday. My right. uh, mother took us or s- sent us um, and went to a big Baptist church and um, went to Sunday school every Sunday and all the rest, and made a profession of faith when I was thirteen, although I was not born again. Hmm. Um, a common problem. Yes, I'm afraid so. <laughs> In many circles. Um, but um, I didn't know it, so I thought my ticket was punched and I was good to go. Um, the way I got into all of this was um, through the desegregation of public schools in Alabama. Um, we were put under a federal court order to desegregate the University of Alabama and uh, various public schools and facilities. And that generated an enormous amount of um, um, agitation, aggravation Anger. Uh, yeah. among many, many white people. Uh, and actually, it helped to trigger a populist wave across the the South, mm-hmm. uh, that was um, probably led more by Governor George Wallace than anybody else. His name would be uh, most readily attached to it. Yeah. So it was a populist uh, period, just like today, actually. Um, Which is a kind of a cautionary tale, isn't it? We got to be very careful when we just sort of swallow uh, the party line, I guess you'd call it, of of you know people that we. We agree with, but you know, we might think, "Wow, is it really possible that we we could be going against the tide? Not only the tide of history, but I think what you point out ultimately in your book, this is this is really going against the love of God for people." Absolutely, and um, it's it's part of the danger of periods of populist um, um, sentiment. Mm. Uh, what happens is something occurs uh, that unsettles people, and uh, society becomes um, uh, really disoriented. And that's what was happening in the 60s. Um, it was a real social upheaval. I was raised in Mobile, as you mentioned, uh, since the founding in 1703. Everything had been segregated. Right. And um, when I grew up in public places, uh, bathrooms had a sign over the door uh, for whites or others for coloreds or water fountains, and just the whole society was structured that way. Yeah. And so that, to me, was normal. Mm. I didn't have any – it's hard for people today to imagine what that would have been like, but uh, it's, it's the flip. It's the reverse of the way things are today. We consider – things today to be normal, where you have um, uh, free access and equal opportunity, equal rights, and things like that, at least in theory we do. Yeah. Um, uh, 
And so my whole world was turned upside down and uh, many other people felt the same way. And um, the danger in these periods like this is that in this social upheaval, people are just saying, what in the world is happening? What's going on? A lot of fear, and, I suppose. Uh, uh, well, absolutely. It's, it's rooted in fear. Yeah. And then fear gives rise to anger. And then anger gives rise to all kinds of bad things. So how did you connect then with the, the, the white supremacy group? Well, my high school was largest in the city and was um, selected for uh, a test case, you might say. And um, so when I arrived at school to start the school year in September, the um, grounds were surrounded by um, National Guard troops to ensure the safe conduct of, uh, I think it was two young African-American girls in, into the um, to the school. So they, they, were, they were integrating your school with two African-Americans, that's all? Two, and a student body was about 2,000. Oh my gosh. So I mean, those two girls, I mean, I, I would have been terrified if I had been them. I mean, I know, I know there's a lot of fear and anger for those 2,000 white students, but I just think about those two poor little girls, and, and that just seems like not very good wisdom to do it that way. I'm sure it was really difficult for them. Yeah. Uh, federal marshals escorted them, uh, but it, it was not an easy thing. Hmm. And um, so um, I was very angry about it all, mm. and uh, others were too. And I wasn't raised to be a, a racist. Or my parents didn't teach me that sort of thing. <clears throat> um, but um, this just rubbed me the wrong way. And the federal government, I was angry at the federal government. Uh, George Wallace had stood in the door of Foster Auditorium at the University of Mississippi defying the assistant U.S. attorney mm -hmm. general. I uh, wouldn't let the students go in, and then uh, the National Guard up there was federalized, and so just stirred up a lot of anger, and um, so that flowed over to me, and then um, there were people distributing uh, racist and anti-Semitic um, propaganda, I would say, around the school at that point, and I got hold of some of that and started reading it, and that's where I started going off the rails, so to speak. Yeah. Just just for the benefit of, of particularly younger uh, listeners to this podcast, how did the Jews get tied up in this whole, you know, what I think people can see from the history of slavery, the antagonism between whites and blacks, but how did the Jews get into this, you know, anti-Semitism thing? Well, far-right ideology, which was what I stumbled into, um, says that the Jews are actually um, conducting a great conspiracy mm. and have been for a long time to try to dominate the world, mm -hmm. and they do it um, in a, a very secretive way, and they try to control uh, key points in society through... Um, you know, their influence, and uh, often you hear international bankers and wealthy people influencing politics and whatever. Right. Uh, and so the narrative was that the, the Jews actually were behind communism. They were 
which was a big fear at that particular yes, time. Yes. Uh, Jews were behind communism and using it for their nefarious ends. And the communists, uh, at the behest of the, the Jews, were actually behind the civil rights movement. Oh. So, and uh, of course, you do have some Jewish people involved in the civil rights movement. Uh, no question about that. But that's, the fact that some were involved is a far cry from it being a conspiracy. But nonetheless, uh, that was all woven together as a piece. And, um, you know, when you're 17 years old, you haven't really developed your critical thinking skills very, uh, very much at that point. And so I just swallowed it. Yeah. Yeah, you didn't have anybody in your life to help you process any of that and help you think critically. No, I didn't, because I was um, alienated from my father, and mm. uh, so he wasn't an option. And um, I, I just fell into a crowd of folks that felt this way, and uh, they reinforced um, these things that I was reading, and so it became a kind of... Uh, peer group of uh, ex- extremists, I suppose you'd say. Tom, would you would you go so far as to characterize um, your adoption of these uh, ideas of this narrative as almost uh, buying into a whole new religion? Well, I would say it's. Um, I'd, I'd back up a step and and say that it was a um, a change of worldview. Yeah. It was a very significant change of worldview, hmm. and um, it does have a religious component to it. As I got more and more into it, there was a, a kind of um, uh, racist religion hmm. um, that justified all of this. And so, uh, yeah, it uh, definitely a religious component, but... Um, First of all, it was a shift in worldview, and so that's... Worldview matters. So, what was it that ultimately kind of took you over the line into considerations of violence, uh, violent activity, terrorism, and and using real, if I could put it this way, real bullets? Well, you know, when you when you take hatred into your mind and heart, it has an effect. Mm. Um, it's like having a, a reverse transplant. I mean, you get cancer transplanted into your body, and it will metastasize throughout your whole system. Right. And hatred is really the cancer of the soul. Mm. And so, as I took that in, um, it began to spread, and I began to become more and more uh, filled with hatred for black people, for Jews, for liberals, for socialists, communists, and on and on, um, seeing them as the enemies of America and the enemies of Christianity. Wow. So, And, of course, the white race. Well, and just to put a historical spin on this. Um, many listeners will be familiar with the novelist John Grisham, um, who I guess was a former lawyer, if I recall. But at any rate, he, he said as a kid in Mississippi in the late 60s, he remembered the men in his church discussing the Klan's bombing campaign against the Jews. 
uh, those men, he said, did not disapprove. He said, later, I would use this fascinating chapter of civil rights history as the backdrop for my novel, The Chamber. And then he names you. Now one of the bombers, Thomas Terrence, tells the real story in this remarkable memoir. It is riveting, inspiring, at times hard to believe, but utterly true, and it gives some measure of hope in these rancorous times. Um, so, yes, I grew up in that same era, and I do remember those bombings. And, you know, it, it's – it's uh, uh, I must say, it's quite an experience to – all these years later, talk to someone who was actively involved in some of that activity. Well, and I know you what, regret it. What can I say? <laughs> yeah, I deeply regret it. It was the biggest mistake of my life, and had tragic consequences. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the book opens with this pretty dramatic story of your capture, basically. I guess you had a bombing uh, strategized out, and uh, you and an accomplice, and you're on the way to commit this thing when, as I understand it, um, you basically had been ratted out by a couple of terrorists who, I guess out of jealousy that they weren't involved, uh, were wondering, okay, uh, let's get rid of this Tom Terrence guy. And, uh, and so the police had been alerted. And next thing you know, your accomplice gets killed, and and you're you're literally one bullet away from from ending your life, a, a, a policeman's bullet ending your life. I mean, I guess your leg did get shot, but I don't know how many times your life got saved in this book <laughs> from death. But uh, that was certainly one of the most dramatic. It uh, it really was. Um, we were completely surprised that the place was staked out and um, um, the shooting started um, my accomplice was killed very quickly and I was shot four times at close range with double up buckshot and uh, it's just a, an absolute miracle that I'm still alive when I got to the hospital the doctor said it would be a, a uh, a miracle if I lived 45 minutes. Yeah, yeah. But you did live, and next thing you know, I mean, after your trial and so forth, you're headed to a high-security prison in uh, southern Alabama, uh, southern, uh, is it Mississippi? Oh, it's nor Al northern, northern Mississippi. Northern Mississippi, yeah. yeah. And state penitentiary there. Yeah. And um, I course had only one thing on my mind and that was to get out and go back to what I'd been doing mm. uh, you might de describe me as having been hardcore <laughs> and you actually did escape you and an accomplice uh, yeah yeah two of us uh, well three of us yeah. um, escaped That's successfully right. and, and, um, and you easily could have gotten killed then too absolutely but I um I survived that, and then a couple of days later, the FBI discovered where we were, and um, it was actually an abandoned farm in a, a heavily wooded area. Had an old farm, dirt farm road that went by, and um, we took turns standing watch uh, near near the road, concealed in some uh, bushes, and um, I'd been standing watch, and one of the other guys that escaped 
with me, came and relieved me uh, 30 minutes early. So I went back to our camp, a little tent we had set up, and um, just a few minutes later, five minutes, 10 minutes at the most, I uh, heard this barrage of gunfire up there where I had been. And um, it, it turned out to be the FBI and their SWAT team saw this guy right where I had been just minutes before, and uh, they knew we were armed with automatic weapons, hand grenades, and things like that. So mm-hmm. they weren't they weren't taking any chances. And um, he was um, he was killed instantly. And I should have been there. I, that should have been me. Yeah. But you know, here's a, another instance of God's mercy. This episode is brought to you in part by Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Over 13,000 people in the Seattle area are homeless. Kathy is one of many who found a new life through Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Growing up, my dad and I didn't get along. I kept running away from home until one time I was assaulted. After that, I carried a lot of pain inside of me, and I was doing a lot of drugs. I became homeless. It's taken me almost 40 years to get the healing I needed. But all along, God was looking out for me. He led me to the mission, and the mission has helped me in all kinds of ways. I've learned how to set boundaries and say no. Now I'm looking forward to working for the mission. I want people to know there's hope out there. God can help you heal. And grace will lead me To hear more, volunteer, or donate, visit UGM.org. Well, it is, uh, and, and particularly, I would point out, you're still filled with hatred, and, and you're, you're not only a bad guy, but you're a bad guy getting worse up to this point. And you go back, they take you back and put you back in solitary confinement. And, uh, you know, at, at, at how does God – how does God reach a, a man filled with hate in solitary confinement? Great question. <laughs> um, Humanly, that just seems impossible. Well, you're exactly right. It is impossible. But that's really the story of salvation for each one of us, because yeah. each one of us is, as Paul said in Ephesians 2, um, Chapter 2, verse 1, we're dead, mm-hmm. spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. Yeah. And that was me. I was spiritually dead. So what did I do when I got back to prison? Well, to keep from going crazy, I had to, you know, I was there 24 hours a day, seven days a week in that cell. Didn't get out except for a shower a couple of times. A, now, uh, as, I, as I understand it, solitary, uh, particularly in many prisons, uh, it's almost set up this way, but it can be its own form of, of torture. D- describe for our listeners what that setting looks like, feels like, smells like. I mean, you're you're in a. Well, I'll let you describe it. Yeah, it's. Um, well, I was put in the maximum security unit, and um, <clears throat> I was on one wing of the unit, and there's a long corridor that goes down um, uh, the wing, and then there are cells uh, all the way down. I think there were 14 cells, one right after another, divided with thick concrete wall. Of course, there are bars across 
um, uh, the front of each one. And so I was in one of those cells all by myself, and um, actually for three years. How big is that uh, cell? Six feet by nine feet. So basically the size of a parking space. Um, a small space. <laughs> yeah, for a, for a very small car, yes. Yeah, wow. <laughs> um, but um, so it was either go crazy or read all the time. Hmm. So I started reading, and um, I wish I could say that I immediately picked up the Bible and um, was convicted of my sins and repented and turned to the Lord. But what did I do? I began reading all the racist, anti-Semitic, far-right books that I had not read up to that point. Now, how, how were you able to get a hold of that material, or frankly, the Bible later? I mean, I, is there like a prison library, or can you order these things by mail? Or how, how does literature even make its way to a prisoner in maximum security? Well, this was back in the, um, um, well, 1970, and the Mississippi uh, prison system was um, very informal, shall we say. It wasn't a professional operation like it is now. Um, and um, they would let me order anything I wanted to order. You know, if I could pay for it, that was fine. They really didn't care. Um, so I was able to do that. And um, so I read all of that, and um, uh, I was just, as, as I mentioned in the book, I hadn't learned the first law of holes, which is if you're in one, stop digging. <laughs> I, I was digging myself ever Deeper. more deeply into um, deception and um, and, so, hatred, and hatred, I guess. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but... At a certain point, I shifted my reading. I'd read most of what there was to uh, to read um, <clears throat> in that racist, um, far-right genre, and uh, began to read in classical philosophy, um, Plato, Aristotle, um, Marcus Aurelius, and Stoics. Um, and um, you might think, well, why that? And I think it was really God prompting me, although I did not certainly realize it at the time. Um, well, it was certainly God prompting you. I, I, I guess I would point out that's consistent with your narrative, um, your story. Tom, you, as, as early as high school, you were, you were thinking. Uh, you pointed out you weren't necessarily critically thinking, but the fact is you, you were trying to make sense of the world. And you bought into a false worldview, but the fact that you're even thinking is is you know uh, significant, and that that's still going on there, you know, ten or twelve years later, whatever it was, five years later. Um, you now only now you're you're getting exposed by the providence of God to let's say some higher, more elevated thinking than you'd been exposed to. Um, right, <laughs> definitely more elevated. Um, uh, and, you know, people think, well, philosophy, what in the world is that going to do for you? How will that help you find the Lord? Um, and certainly there's a lot of philosophy out there that will keep you far from God. But uh, not all of it is bad, and there are some 
some good ideas that can be found in some writers. And so um, Plato was helpful to me. One of the things that stood out for me was um, I came away with a conviction that uh, there was such a thing as um, absolute truth, objective reality, and it was there to be discovered. Hmm. And, um, and then from Socrates, the unexamined life, he said, is not worth living. So these two ideas um, really captured my thinking. Um, and so I, I thought, you know, I should pursue truth. Hmm. And wherever that takes me is where I'll, I'll go. And I'll examine my life. Now, this had nothing, I had absolutely no idea that this would take me away from what I was believing, my ideology, previous ideology. Hmm. It was what you might call a disinterested pursuit of truth. Yeah. Um, and so, um, I continued reading other things, and uh, I came to a point where I just felt drawn to read the Gospels. So, I began to read the Gospels, but I should underscore, it was not because I thought I needed to be saved. Right. Because I thought I had already sorted that out, and that I was fighting for God and country. I was the good guy, you know? Yeah. Um, and it wasn't to try to get out of the bad situation I was in, it was just seeking for truth. Uh, little did I know, though, that the Holy Spirit had been setting me up for an ambush <laughs> and uh, drawing me into this pursuit of truth. And then as I was reading the Word, um, my eyes began to be opened. I began to see, and I, I'm sure I'd heard these things in Sunday school and uh, in church. Uh, they never registered, but now my eyes began to be opened, and I... I began to understand the meaning of what I was reading and its application to my life. Oh. I began to come to a place of conviction of sin and repentance, which was altogether missing from uh, my profession of faith. I was just trying to make sure I didn't go to hell uh, at age 13. But um, this was very different. And so this went on for a number of days, uh, probably a couple of weeks, where God brought to my mind um, all kinds of sins that I had committed and uh, conviction, uh, repentance, tears, hmm. um, seeking forgiveness. And, and so even though it might sound like church never did me any good, it certainly did me this wonderful amount of good. It taught me exactly what I needed to know at that moment. Yeah. John 3.16, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. So, you know, I didn't have to scratch my head and, and say, well, where's the Quran? Let's see if, if um, yeah. you know, I can find some light there or how about Buddha or whatever. I, I knew to go straight to Jesus. And that's um, what I did one night on my knees in that cell and asked, Jesus to um, forgive me of my sins and take over my life. And something changed inside. I could tell it. Um, and I haven't been the same since. That was 50 years ago. Amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. And it's just all God's grace. It is His grace. Yeah. 
you you began to meet other Christians at first, like what prison chaplains or people in the system or uh, guards or you know different people that uh, you know sort of find out that you're you're now got a whole new uh, allegiance in your life, a whole new way of thinking, uh, and they begin to minister to you. Uh, yeah, it was it was great that um, I I didn't have any uh, Christians right around me. Okay. Uh, how, did, on, how did people begin to find? How did people begin to find out that a change had happened? Well, I didn't. Um, I, I just went about my business, <laughs> reading reading the Bible uh, six or eight hours a day and ordering books and stuff like that, and the people working in the prison there uh, who knew me uh, before, and after, they saw changes in my life. Yeah. Um, and uh, the chaplain, one of the, well, a couple of the chaplains, they would come through and they, they could tell something was going on, and uh, one of them uh, gave me some books and um, excellent stuff to read, and so that was that was helpful and um um the time came i suppose after maybe a year or so that um i was given an opportunity to get out of the cell and work there in the maximum security unit as a clerk and um and then that that went well and from there i was released from the maximum security unit into the uh, prison population so uh, but there were lots and lots of skeptics, I can tell you. Yes, there were many skeptics, and why not? You know, there's certainly more than once as a prisoner, you know, done the done the conversion thing and, and started talking a new line just in hopes that it'll give them some favor, and, uh, and oftentimes, you know, that it'll somehow go well with the parole board. Right. Uh, certainly is that um, – uh, thing of of jailhouse religion, yeah, that lasts uh, as long as you're in the jailhouse. But but you had some uh, people vouch for you. Yeah, um, what happened over time was that um, um, well, J. Edgar Hoover sent this FBI agent who had originally uh, set up the ambush in Meridian, Mississippi, where. I first ran into this trouble, um, and um, his name was Frank Watts, and he sent him up to the prison when Hoover heard that I had gotten religion, because he thought it was just a scam. And um, Frank said, when he saw me, he said, my countenance was different. He knew something had wow. changed, and asked me what it was, and I just, you know, I was a very new Christian. I didn't know what to do. I just... <laughs> told him my story, told him my testimony, and he went away scratching his head. Now, he he was a good man. Yeah. He was a really good man, um, very moral man, and um, a member of a Southern, well, First Baptist Church there in Meridian. Uh, and he was even concerned about me when he came to interview me there in jail in Meridian. He thought I was really messed up and mixed up, and he got his pastor to come talk to me. Mm. What Frank discovered after that interview, he saw the change that God had made in my life, and he realized that he had never 
been born again himself. Wow. He was a good he was a good official Southern Baptist, but he wasn't born again. Yeah. And the Lord changed his life and my goodness, it was he was a different guy. Um there's a story behind this story, and that is that his wife had a prayer group. Mm. These women were praying, and I don't know, only the Holy Spirit could have led them to do this. They thought, well, God can do miracles. He can save this guy. Um, nothing's impossible with God. So they started praying for my conversion. They prayed for two years. Once a week, they would get together and pray for my conversion. Wow. And, um, so that's the story behind the story of my um, uh, odyssey there in the um, maximum security unit. Uh, and God gave them a bonus um, by saving the, the uh, FBI agent. Yeah, a, agent as well. So, well, um, Tom, you know, anyway. you may know the name Henrietta Mears. She was at Hollywood oh. Presbyterian Church for many years and a mentor to many, many Christian leaders. And she, right. she had a saying that she quoted ceaselessly, which was, prayer does not prepare us for the battle. Prayer is the battle. Uh, you know, Jesus made enormous, uh, almost audacious, outrageous promises to us about prayer. And it's all through the scriptures that when we pray, God listens and He answers. And it, it, prayer unleashes His power. And you're a perfect example of a group of women who took that seriously and in a very quiet but, but believing way, uh, they just faithfully prayed. And, uh, and you were able to come to faith. How does God reach a, a hate-filled man in, in – uh, in maximum security prison, well, uh, he does it through prayer. Yeah, there's there's effective means that he uses along the way, but the real instrumental means, it seems to me, started with prayer. It unleashed his power. Absolutely, I I agree a hundred percent, and that's why one of the reasons prayer has been such a really important thing in my own life. Yeah. So. Well, you. Um, I mean, it, it's a it's a fascinating story that I I certainly encourage our listeners to get hold of and read word for word because I honestly was turning the pages, I couldn't put the book down and uh, and so another miracle in here is that you eventually get out of prison like you that probably never you thought that might never happen, but it but it does and there again you've got some sponsors who say, well, we'll sort of take responsibility to look after this man, and, and, and you go right out of prison into college. I mean, that, that's an amazing thing. It was. It was really amazing. Um, I had been studying while I was there in prison. I, I took some courses in New Testament Greek from Moody Bible Institute, and um, I, I think I may have taken a course in John's Gospel, too. Mm. Uh, but... Um, I wanted to get out and to study more, and um, so going to school was a was a big uh, priority for me. And God just opened the door for that to happen in a really remarkable way. We don't have time, I'm sure, yeah. to go into all the details of that, but um, um, it's almost borders on the miraculous because the the, the warden uh, who approved my release was. Um, only on the job for about two weeks, a new guy, and um, he didn't know anything about me except he had a folder on his desk that was about six inches thick of uh, 
what a mess I was. And uh, he interviewed me for about half an hour, like a um, cross-examination uh, on a witness stand. And then at the end of it, he stopped and he said, well, um, and, and all I did was just tell him my story. He, he said, why should I let you out of here? <laughs> and uh, that, I just told him what God had done. And he said, well, I don't, I don't, uh, I wouldn't let you out on the strength of your religion because I don't think it's worth a nickel. Um, <laughs> and uh, he said, I'm an, I'm an atheist and I've, I've only seen one person in all my years that got religion in prison and kept it when they got out. But it's wow. obvious your life has changed, and I want to give you a chance to make something out of yourself. And uh, so you you can go next, uh, I think he said next Monday, if that's soon enough. And, uh, of course, he didn't know that that group of ladies was <laughs> was praying. Right. And some other people that had come into the picture, too. And so, um, anyway, God, God uh, just did an amazing thing. I went to Ole Miss. Um, and got in the classics program. I actually left before I graduated. Uh, I'm, I'm a kind of odd duck. I, I didn't uh, complete my studies there, but I somehow managed to get into a master's program and then uh, do a doctoral program. <laughs> uh, but um, Well, you clearly love to learn, Tom. <laughs> that's that's pretty do, evident. You got a lifelong pattern of loving to learn. So I love it. Yeah. I do. But, um, you know, God – worked in amazing ways and gave me relationships with African-American people all along the way. It wasn't something I was out trying to make happen. God just brought these brothers and sisters into my life. And um, Was that hard? Was that hard when you – I mean, obviously in prison, I'm sure you had met many African-Americans and, and for all I know, some Jews too. But uh, it, was it hard? I mean, knowing that you – first of all, you've got this regrets of past sins that you've committed against people of color, um, but but just, you know, all that you didn't know about African Americans at that point. You, you, these, are, these are distant people that you have had very little interaction with. Was it hard to even get to know them? Well, God delivered me from – all that racism and hatred hmm. uh, when when I was converted. Actually, before I was converted, I, I saw the uh, fallacies of, of racism and anti-Semitism. But um, after I came to the Lord, He He um, uh, put love in my heart for people, and so it was it was really interesting. I I didn't have problems uh, relating uh, to African Americans and. Uh, developed some really good friendships and began to understand a little bit about uh, what life was like uh, in that community and some of the problems and issues that even we're dealing with today. Yeah. Um, so that was good, but it was not the focus of my ministry or anything. It's just a normal part of life. Basically, what I tell people is, uh, look, you don't need to get on some uh, crusade about this issue. Just love your neighbor. Regardless of the color, um, you know, the ethnicity, the political views or whatever, Jesus said, love your neighbor. They say, well, you don't know some of my neighbors. They're, they're enemies. Said, well, okay, Jesus said, love your enemy too. So That's right. There's no way out of this. No so, 
Well, you and use that's the what we you, need today. You use the word friendships, and I, I love that word. In the time we have left, I I want to talk a little bit, or have you talk to us about? Um, so, how do you? I, I, this may sound like an absurd question, but how do you build friendships? Like, like what? That's that's not brain surgery, as I understand it. Um, but then your book, you you have some practical suggestions about uh, finding people that are different from you and beginning to form relationships with them. Yes, I'm glad you asked that. You know, we don't want to overthink this thing. My goodness, <laughs> um, pray. That's step number one. Right. Pray. And well, I guess no. Step number one is is confronting your own heart, praying, mm-hmm. and asking the Holy Spirit to show you if you've got any of these. Uh, racist attitudes or, you know, hatred or anything like that and and deal with that. But then pray for God to lead you to someone that you can develop a friendship with. And then just be friends for the sake of being friends and let the relationship develop along natural lines and uh, don't try to make it happen, just let it happen. Uh, Be honest, open, um, and at some point, the subject of race will come up, and um, you can learn from uh, your friend what life's been like for them. And uh, really, a part of this uh, is a matter of learning to see from the other person's point of view, hmm. learning how to walk in their moccasins as yeah. the saying goes and most of us don't do that most most of us white people you know we're pretty much concerned with the circles we move in and we don't think much about doing this and um and we really don't understand african-american community or or others yeah that are hispanic or whatnot Uh, but relationship is the key in this whole thing of reconciliation just really getting to know understand love people who are different and see the world through their eyes and if you develop a relationship of trust, uh, you can come to a point where they will be- begin to open the door and let you know uh, what things really are like from their point of view. Well, that doesn't happen otherwise. Yeah. It, it sounds like, you know, one strategy that you're sort of – I hate to use the word strategy. One thing that you were suggesting here when you say get to know someone is inviting them to tell their story. You know, the best way to know people is by listening to their story. If you hear their story, you now understand how, what they came from and, and therefore what's probably led them to have the thoughts and views that they do. Exactly. Exactly right. Just listening to their story, sharing your story in a, a gracious way with humility. Um, and God works through that. God works through relationships. You see it all through the Bible. So. He absolutely does. Tom, uh, you know, in Ephesians 6, Paul uh, talks about the warfare that Christians are in, um, but he, he makes a very important statement. Our, our, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. People are not the enemy. Uh, people, people are, in a sense, the, the victims of the enemy. The people, people are in the grip of an enemy. And uh, and the the dastardly nature of it is they're unaware of that predicament, and it seems like you were, you know, up until up until God began to get a hold of you in prison, 
And uh, what you're what you're asking us in a sense is, hey, we need to release people from that grip by being Christ to them. Absolutely, the aroma of Christ, and um, realizing exactly what you're saying that. Um, the devil blinds the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And he uses all kinds of things to blind people's minds uh, and ideologies, racism. Uh, those are just two. Uh, one of the old Puritans said, the devil is a master fisherman. He baits his hook according to the appetite of the fish. <laughs> and so he'll hook you any way he can. He will. But it is a spiritual battle, ultimately. Tom Terrence, uh, praise God that he delivered you and uh, brought peace and love into your heart and the grace of Christ. Again, Tom Terrence, consumed by hate, redeemed by love. For The Table, I am Bill Hendricks. If you have a topic you'd like us to consider for a future episode, please email us at thetable at dts.edu. We'll look for, for you next time. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.